lived. It was for the gospel that the Apostle Paul lived. We began to become acquainted with him last week as we began our study in Romans. Get it right and you won't be wrong. Uh, the sum total of uh, Romans addresses every significant theological matter that we Christians are to be right about. Get it right in Romans and you will not be wrong. And so we began last week just with a few verses, uh, a few words, uh, in verse 1, in which Paul identified himself somewhat uh, surprisingly as a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Here is one of the greatest uh, rabbis, theologians, PhDs of the day, and yet he took on as a badge of honor this particular epithet, I am Paul, I am proud, I am unashamed to identify myself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That's what you could call me. And while Paul called himself a slave of Christ, you ought to know that God himself called him something entirely different. In fact, God called him an apostle. And this can be clearly seen as you see uh, part two of verse one of chapter one. We read Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, and here it is, called as an apostle. Uh, God did this, not Paul. He didn't run a campaign. Uh, he did not attain to this office himself. God initiated the process. Paul did not choose this role of apostleship for himself. God chose it for him. Folks, we are exactly like Paul in being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, in being bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are not like Paul in this respect. He is different than we are. He is an apostle, and uh, at the risk of offending some, none of us is. We ain't apostles. We are disciples of the Lord Jesus, but we are not an apostle. A certain specially chosen representatives of the Lord were called apostles. Uh, we are not writers of the Bible today. We are readers of the Bible. The writers of the Bible were apostles, two groups of people, those who wrote the First Testament or the Old Testament, those are prophets. Those who wrote the Second Testament or the New Testament, those are apostles. Not a one of us is writing new scripture. Perish the thought. In fact, doing so bears with it a curse. Don't do it. Don't subtract. Don't add. Just feast on what God has given in 66 books. I did not write a one of those. Neither did anyone here I have the privilege of reading and trying to live by all 66, but they have been provided by Almighty God through human agency known as prophets and apostles, and I ain't one of them, and neither is you, with all due respect. It's great to be a servant of Christ, and it's wonderful to be a growing disciple, but I'm neither a prophet nor an apostle, and neither are you. In fact, the role served by prophets and apostles, in my humble yet accurate opinion, has been served forevermore, and therefore, I don't think we have such offices in the church today. Now, I'm uh, perhaps alone in this point of view. Maybe there are others here who have a different point of view, and you're entitled to your wrong opinion. Let me just um, 
let me just share with you uh, what the scriptures have to say about this. We read, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, about God's household, which has been, and here's what it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The church had a foundation. Who laid the foundation? prophets and apostles. We're on the superstructure of the foundation. I don't need to go back to the time when God's word was being formed. I'm in the time when God's word is to be read and understood and respected and obeyed. So Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, specifically and specially called and equipped and authorized as one of his representatives. It's interesting by way of contrast. Before Paul became a believer, he was a representative of Jewish religious leaders who sent him out to put Christians in chains. And after he became a believer, he was a representative of the Lord Jesus sent out to free people from their chains. That's what an apostle is. One sent out, commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, taking the gospel of grace with them so as to set people free. So the text says, this Paul, he was an apostle. Here's what it says. Set apart for the gospel of God. For its proclamation, you bet. Tell the world, Paul, in so many words, God commissioned him. To communicate the gospel, is that the reason wherein he was set apart? Of course, but not just that. I think it's also to experience and enjoy the gospel. And the same is true of you and I. The gospel is something not just to be intellectually received. It's sunlight in which to bask in. Listen, for the better part of this man's adult life, he strained himself so as to live up to the law of God as given on Mount Sinai by Moses. He did a better job than probably anyone here, and yet his efforts did not impress God at all. Even Paul fell short of the glory of God. He cried out one time, I'm in bondage. Who's going to set me free? He was in bondage to self-effort, human tradition, and this insatiable, prideful appetite to think he could ascend to the moral and ethical perfections of God in his own strength. And finally, a dramatic experience on a road towards Syria. We'll talk about it in days to come. Uh, he was blinded physically so that he could see spiritually. And he saw the one who satisfied the requirements of the law for him. And for the first time in his life, this rabbi knew what it was to enter into Sabbath rest. Just as God ceased from the efforts in his physical creation, now Paul knew, I can rest spiritually because the finish of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which obtained my redemption. Let me tell you something. He not only proclaimed the gospel, he enjoyed it. He experienced it. And I think one of the reasons behind his passionate willingness to proclaim the gospel 
is that he knew he was now accepted in the beloved. He knew he was acceptable to the beloved. He knew day by day he was coming to look more and more like the beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was so filled and pumped up with the joy of his salvation, he could not contain it. If you and I are finding a bit of hesitation and reluctance in proclaiming the gospel, let's back up a little bit. Have we ceased to enjoy the salvation with which we have been saved? Get alone with God, walk in the woods, and reflect on the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Remind yourself that you have as much of God's favor as you need. You can never diminish his favor because his favor, good news, has nothing to do with you. It has to do with your faith connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach to yourself a very vital sermon. Remind yourself of your status as a part of a holy priesthood, a royal nation, a people set apart for God's own possession. Remind yourself that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I'm telling you, you better preach loud because you're going to hear other voices, but they're not yours. They're from the accuser. And he's going to insert in the midst of your sermon, he's going to try to interrupt you. And he's going to say, oh yeah, what about this that you did? What about this that you said? What about this that you think? And you're going to have to say, get thee behind me. Satan, and you're going to have to share truth, not only with him, but also with you. And here is the truth. If the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. Here is the truth. If Jesus has taken you, warts and all, just the way you are, do not let anybody else evaluate your standing with him. If Jesus has bequeathed to you right standing, then don't think you're on the outs with God. If the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is the cleansing agent from all of your sin, then walk around like a forgiven and cleansed person. And then when you're in the woods preaching to yourself, you'll see someone on a bench, and you'll go over to them, and you'll say, excuse me, this is a little awkward. I don't mean to uh, interrupt your solitude and reverie, but I just got to get this out. And you're going to share the gospel. Otherwise, you're going to explode. Oh, he was set apart not just to preach it, but to enjoy it. And the same is true of us. Now, this being the case, don't you think we ought to really, really slow down and be right about the gospel? See, we got to be right about the gospel because if we're wrong about the gospel, that is really, really, really bad. So, so let's begin with basics. Here is what the word means. It means good news. Hear ye, hear ye, good news. The gospel is good news. From whom? From God. That's what the text says. It is, it says right there in verse 1, it is the gospel of God. It emanates with him. It is his idea. It's not your good news. It's not my good news. It's nobody's good. It's God's good news. He's the author. The gospel is his message to us. It's the message that Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and then rose up from the state of death so that all who would believe on him would be saved forevermore and would one day either upon our passing or his return, enter into an eternal state of bliss with a face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ 
forever. Well, let me tell you something. That is some powerful good news. Here is a simple uh, depiction of what the gospel is, what the good news is. Folks, you got to start with bad news. Here's the bad news. We've been created in the image of God, and we sinned. He gave us one thing not to do, and that's what we violated, and it separated us. This is really bad news. We're on one side. God's on the other. There's a big gap chasm between us. It's a chasm, a separation caused by sin, and we cannot, in spite of our best efforts, we cannot bridge it. Now, you've got to have bad news first before you can appreciate the gospel. Good news. Here's the good news. Jesus bridged the gap. On one side, he's the son of man, and he said, take my hand to the rest of humankind. But on the other side, he's the son of God. His hand is in the father's hand because he bears the essential nature of deity. That is the gospel. Sin separated, and the Savior bridged the gap. Folks, world leaders want us to believe they have good news. World leaders not only want us to believe they have good news, world leaders want us to believe they are good news. In fact, there was an inscription found uh, dating back to 9 BC, uh, and it refers to the birthday of Emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus. And it says, but the birthday of the God, that's how the emperor was referred to, was for the world the beginning of Tidings of joy, good news, on his account. Yep. He claimed to be good news, but folks, the gospel of God is much better news than the birthday of Caesar Augustus. It is about the birth of Messiah Jesus. That's good news. Now, there's something else to know about the gospel. First, it comes from God. Second, did you know the gospel was in God's heart and mind before it changed our hearts and minds? In fact, it says this in verse 2. We are picking up speed. <laughs> which he, which is referring to the gospel, see? Which he, God, promised, God makes promises, which he promised beforehand, when? Before what we're reading in Romans. God promised the gospel beforehand, how? Through his prophets. Remember, prophets are the ones who gave us the First Testament, the Old Testament. Where did God promise the gospel beforehand through his prophets? In the Holy Scriptures. For those of you who think the Old Testament ought to be left behind, I doubt there's too many here. We just wouldn't, you wouldn't last too long in this church. But, but if perhaps you do... Uh, uh, that testament, which you may think is obsolete and archaic and has no relevance or application, is the very testament God himself refers to as the holy scriptures. You see, when Paul is writing what he's writing here, they didn't have the New Testament. Therefore, this declaration, holy scriptures, that's a reference to the Old Testament. So, folks, before the fulfillment of the gospel through the birth and life and death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, before the fulfillment of the good news recorded for us by the apostles in the New Testament, there was the promise of the gospel recorded by the prophets 
in the Old Testament. And so now you can see the continuity between the Old and New Testament. One God wrote both. Old Testament promise of good news. New Testament fulfillment of good news. Old Testament looking forward to good news. New Testament looking back on good news, namely on the cross on which the Lord Jesus Christ died. And so we have promise in the First Testament, fulfillment in the second. Folks, let me mention this to you. God created the world. You know this, right? And the scriptures say uh, that the world was, before creation, formless and void. Two Hebrew words, tohu wavohu. Isn't that weird? Tohu wavohu. It's meant to be sort of a play on words. Tohu wavohu. Nothing to it. It was formless and void. And what God did was, you can read the account of creation in Genesis. He formed it and he filled it. It was formless and empty, tohu wavohu. He remedied the situation. He shaped it, he formed it, and he filled it. And when, in his estimation, it was habitable, it was a home in which we could survive in, then he made us. And he put us into this hitherto formless and void world, which he now made one in which we could breathe and thrive and grow and be sustained. He's good and he loves us and when all this creative activity was completed God stood back as if he was an artist admiring his work and pronounced upon creation behold it was tov ma'od it was good to the max it's really what I did for you is really really Good, but then something really, really bad happened. The first of us, their names are Adam and Eve, sinned. And what was very good suddenly became very bad. Really bad, they sinned. And sin erected a barrier between sinful man and a sinless God that could not be bridged by even the best of man's efforts. And Adam and Eve made some efforts in bridging the gap. You know what they did first? They hid from God. Remember this? Folks, it's foolish to try to escape the reality of God while still living in the world God made. Where are you going to go? So they tried to hide. Second thing they did, they knew they were naked. That is to say, vulnerable to God's judgments. So what they did in their own strength and effort was to try to cover for their nakedness by making an apron of leaves. You know this? That's the world's first religion. I don't need a redeemer. I can cover up for my own vulnerability before God by making an apron of leaves. First, they tried to hide in God's world. Then they tried to make... It was futile, an apron of leaves. Then you know what they did next? It's the next thing we did. Uh, they did. It's what we do. They blamed each other. Adam said, God, the woman you gave me, she did it. She said, it was the snake. Blame shifting. That's what we do. That's what, those are the three efforts we make today to try to get off the hook that we're on because of our own 
sin. Now, I got to tell you something. Humankind would have been without hope, but for the promise of good news, promise of good news, which God delivered in that very first book of the Bible in which Adam and Eve sinned. And I want to show you, perhaps you're aware of it, maybe not. I want to show you the first occurrence of the promise, the statement of gospel, of good news in all of the Bible. The first mention of the gospel is in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and you can find it in chapter 3, verse 15. It is key. Genesis 3, 15. It says, and I, God speaking, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Adam and Eve sinned. Satan tempted them into it. Satan approached them, you might find this surprising, as a serpent. You would say, how could anyone have a conversation with an unattractive serpent? That's not the way snakes were. Did you know they did not crawl on the ground? Did you know they were attractive in that day? And they had legs. The snake was Satan personified. And so the text here says, God speaking to the serpent, a personification of Satan, God said, I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan, and your seed and the woman's seed. The two of you are not to form a coalition. What comes from you, Satan, what comes from you, woman, are to be diametrically opposed. You are to affect no alliance and no partnership. Now, Satan's seed, not too difficult to figure out. Everything that emanates from Satan is Satan's seed. But the woman's seed, who is that? If you're a Hebrew reader of Scripture, you are shocked by this statement about the woman's seed. You see, biologically, that doesn't happen. Women do not have the seed of generation. Men do. The only place in the entire Bible where you see this reference, seed of woman, is here. Nowhere else. It's the seed of man. Don't have to be more graphic than just to say what I, what I just said. Therefore, the reader is wondering, who then is this unusual seed of woman? Folks, it is a foreshadowing of the miraculously birthed Son of God. He, Jesus, was miraculously implanted in Mary's womb. And in this way, he did not inherit our sin nature. The child, the baby Jesus, was produced by the Spirit of God, not by the seed of man, in the womb of Mary. The seed of the woman, as mentioned way back in Genesis 3.15, points to a future promised descendant of Eve who would have no human father. Joseph was the legal foster father of Jesus. 
Joseph did not. It was not his seed that impregnated Miriam or Mary. The baby in her was born, produced by the Holy Spirit of God. Folks, you know what you have in Genesis 3.15? You have a primitive, somewhat veiled reference to the virgin birth and incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the nature of the Bible. Old Testament introduces all these redemptive truths, and as you proceed through the Bible, God adds to it so that there's a clearer picture of things. Remember, Old Testament promise, New Testament fulfillment. Folks, Genesis 3.15 is a verse containing a promise of good news through the coming of the sinless one, Jesus. And the coming of the sinless one is not all that's foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15. It's also about what he will come to do. So notice this in the second part of Genesis 3.15. He, that's Jesus, he shall bruise you, that's Satan, on the head. It's a mortal Fatal, lethal wound. He, Jesus, will bruise you, Satan, on the head. You, Satan, shall bruise him, Jesus, for sure you will, on the heel. The crucifixion was an excruciating, painful way to die. But it didn't have the last word. Jesus rose up from it. So you can see the wound prophesied here. To be inflicted on Satan by the seed of the woman will be fatal. There'll be a time when Satan's cast into the lake of fire will be done with him forevermore. There'll be a time. This is lethal. But the wound he inflicted on the Lord Jesus, painful though it is, did not have the last word. He won victory over the last enemy, death. Folks, Jesus was crucified rose up from death, said it is finished, defeated Satan, the accuser of the brethren who has no grounds of accusation against us anymore. Jesus won victory for us on the cross, paid for the penalty fully of all our sin. Folks, this is the gospel, just as it says in Romans 1, promised beforehand way back. Through the words of Moses in Genesis 3, verse 15, and you and I have been set apart to proclaim it and to enjoy it forevermore. Now, let's be right about the gospel. It's from God. Nobody came up with this. Number two, it was promised by God beforehand. Number three, this is so very important to be right about. Don't be wrong about this. God's gospel is about God's son. You extract Jesus from the mix and you don't have God's gospel whatsoever. So you see in verse 3, all this is concerning his son. We are preoccupied with what we must do to be right with God. The gospel, however, speaks about what God has already done through his son. The gospel of God is about the Son of God. The text, verse 3 says, who was born 
of a descendant of David according to the flesh. That is a reference to the incarnation of the very Son of God. He comes from a Jewish line, a royal line, namely uh, David HaMelech, David the King. This King of Kings condescended so as to become enfleshed and tied to the line of King David. So God's Son was born in the line of David. The eternal Son of God became man. This is a reference to his incarnation. It is an unbelievable condescension of Almighty God. So verse 3 declares the Lord's humanity. He comes from the line of David, but don't stop there. Verse 4 is a reference to his divinity. Folks, if you get this right, you won't be wrong. Which is it for Jesus? Is he man or is he God? The answer is what? Both. The answer is yes. How much? He's fully man. How much? Fully God. How does that work? I don't have any idea. Praise the Lord. He's incomprehensible. But that I don't fully comprehend. The ways of God is no grounds for dismissing the ways of God. Good night. I don't even know how to program my computer, let alone figure out the humanity and deity of Christ Jesus. But here you have juxtaposed. Be right about this and you'll get it right. Verse 3, his humanity. Verse 4, you'll see in just a second, his deity. Major cult groups and aberrant religious groups are off on one or more of these. He is either so divine that he's not Emmanuel, God with us. He never died for us. God has no son, or he is so human, he's just a friend, he's just a pal, he's just, he's not the Savior. Get this right, the humanity and deity of Christ, and you, you, you won't be led astray. So here's a statement of his divinity, verse 4, who was declared the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Folks, it's the resurrection that sets Jesus apart from all pretenders to the throne. And it is the resurrection that authenticates his deity, the fact that he is God. Folks, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he is not the Lord of life. And if he is not the Lord of life, the only other options is that he is either a liar or a lunatic. Which is it for you? What is your decision about him? Perhaps this will help you render the right one. He is risen. And in rising from the dead, God did not give us a subtle clue. It's an in-your-face declaration of the vindication of the crucified Son of God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus rose up from death, meaning he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's Lord, and he told the truth. Folks, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And this divine declaration of Christ's sonship through the resurrection from the dead leads us to this grand declaration in verse 4, Jesus Christ, our Lord, he's much more than David's son. He's God's son. He is our Lord. He is our master. We are his subjects. Jesus is the Lord. 
of the Apostle Paul. Jesus is the Lord of the Roman Christians to whom Paul wrote. Jesus is the Lord of everyone here who has called upon his name. We are united with followers of the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago and even before. Folks, the gospel is good news from God, good news that was promised by God beforehand. It is good news that was fulfilled through the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, by a person's statement of personal faith in these facts, makes Jesus for them Savior from sin and Lord over their eternal lives. May you and I, like Paul, be set apart for the gospel of God. To proclaim it, for sure. To explode with it, you betcha. But first to experience it and to enjoy it. And because of the gospel, to God be the glory both now and forevermore. Do you agree? Me too. To God be the glory. Why? Great things he has done. Namely, so loved he the world. What? He wrote a song? That he gave us what? A possession? His son. What did he do? He yielded his life. What, was he some crazed martyr, some attention-getting egotist? Who yielded his life, this is a gospel, an atonement covering for sin. And what purpose did it serve? Don't you see? It opened the life gate that all may go in. We've got to praise the Lord. Thank you.